Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Events over the past year have shone a light on racial inequality across the globe. Australia is no exception. This nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind, and in a spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. I asked the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. I'm here to make a public statement. Australia is back on track. I actually find it gobsmacking. Just dumbstruck. I'm going to shirt front, Mr Putin. I want to thank uh, that fellow down under. I don't think I know. I have no hesitation. That should cause great concern. Just sit down. Let's stick in your eyes. You're a classic space invader. A social climbing sycophant. He needs a mirror. I mean... Oh, fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. Taste of democracy, very good. <laughs> G'day and thanks for joining us on Democracy Sausage. I'm Mark Kenny from ANU and with me this week, as usual, is Dr Maria Teflaga, political scientist extraordinaire from our School of Politics and International Relations. Hi there, Maria. Hello. And joining us from London, where, let's face it, things have been pretty exciting of late, are two democracy sausage favourites, Elizabeth Ames and Sophia Gaston. Elizabeth Ames is the Chief Operating Officer at Atalanta. She's the Chair of the King's College London or King's College Institute and a Board Director of the Britain Australian Society. Hello, Elizabeth. Last time we spoke uh, to you it was back in the Boris Johnson period. It was, and we're now well. We're still in the Boris Johnson period. He will have to be dragged out kicking and screaming. I think that we are <laughs> we're edging closer to the end of Boris's tenure. Well, I mean, the point is he's he's uh, he's gone pro tem, hasn't he? I mean, he's um, he's been sort of removed, but it's it's like a Clayton's sacking in a sense. He's been sacked on character grounds, which is interesting. I mean, that's effectively what it is, and yet his character is sufficiently there's enough there to uh, for him to keep the job for a while for some indeterminate period about which we will uh, no doubt get into in a moment. Let's also bring in Sophia Gaston. She is the director of the British Foreign Policy Group. She's a social and political researcher and she is a research fellow at the London School of Economics and Political Science and of course like Elizabeth uh, a uh, semi-regular on Democracy Sausage. Welcome to you Sophia. Thanks very much for having me. Uh, it's always a pleasure and we're really looking forward, uh, aren't we, Maria, to talking about uh, what's been going on in uh, in Britain, uh, in England, uh, in Britain in particular, I suppose, uh, because uh, it's, it's, as I said in a recent column, it's kind of been more entertaining and I don't wish to make complete light of this, of course, because uh, these are serious matters, but nonetheless, with the, uh, I guess, the comfort of distance, we've watched this uh, 
at a fairly agreeable time of night as well. We could watch uh, parliamentary questions, uh, prime minister's questions. Uh, we could watch, um, you know, these uh, interviews, these resignations rolling out in real time. I was watching it on uh, on Sky UK, which is I think had some really superb coverage of this, and uh, it's uh, it's really been better than anything you could get on on the streaming services, Maria. Oh, yeah, I think this is, and uh, you probably hear my baby crying in the background, which I think is a good soundtrack to, I guess, the sort of ongoing saga that has been this quasi-resignation um, from Boris. And, you know, I thought Australia could really deliver a good leadership change, but this um, this resignation um, or, or, or such as it is, uh, is really quite extraordinary. You know, 60 people um, resigning, an inability really to be able to field um, a cabinet and then a resignation speech which showed no contrition and didn't even have a timetable attached to it. I mean, you know, if this was um, a sort of political drama, we would all just sort of turn it off and say completely unbelievable. (laughs) That's right. It was more exciting than most things you see on Netflix but slightly less plausible. Um, uh, Elizabeth, perhaps uh, perhaps I can come to you on this if, if you can just give us a snapshot of what actually happened. Yeah, it was a it was sort of an unexpected end in the end. Although as lots of people have observed, it uh, bore all the hallmarks of the things that uh, are sort of defining characteristics of uh, Boris Johnson. So there was lying. There was sort of trying to fudge the facts and pretend that he hadn't heard things and he hadn't seen what he had actually been told. And so. In the end, it was a, a deputy whip called Chris Pincher, and the whips in the UK system are much more important than they are in Australia because party discipline isn't as strong. So they really need the whips to kind of keep people in line and, and vote. And they're also supposed to provide a measure of pastoral care to the MPs. And a, a reminder that there are more than 600 MPs in the uh, House of Commons in the UK. So it's a lot of people to keep track of. And there had been rumours floating around about Chris Pincher for a very long time. He has a tendency to grope. Uh, attractive young men. Um, and he went to the Carlton Club, which is one of those sort of bastion clubs uh, in in the UK on Pall Mall, very old um, and august institution, very associated with the Tory party. And he got very, very drunk uh, and apparently groped two young men and um, wrote this wonderful resignation letter in which he didn't admit to what he'd done, but just said he had disgraced himself and the Prime Minister and he would be resigning. And Interestingly, that seemed to be the final straw for a lot of uh, a lot of members of the party, particularly because Boris Johnson tried to protect Chris Pincher, as he had done previously um, with other people accused of misbehaviour. And, and Pincher had been very loyal to Boris Johnson for a very long time. And, and interestingly, even though he himself has not been very loyal to others, Boris Johnson appears to reward it. Um, and you had Sajid Javid, who was the health secretary at the time, announce his resignation. And then Rishi Sunak, who had been widely rumoured to be plotting his own leadership campaign, exactly eight minutes later tweeted out a very uh, prepared uh, letter of his own resigning and then put out a very slick video a couple of days later about uh, about his campaign called Ready for Rishi. And um, you then had this sort of cascade of people resigning and, and not just senior ministers but junior ministers and all up you had more than 50 people resign from Boris Johnson's government, which meant essentially that you know, that was about half. They have about 100 people on the on the payroll here in terms of ministers and junior ministers and, and parliamentary secretaries. And they couldn't form a cabinet. And so various people went in to tell Boris Johnson it was over. Someone said, you know, it was like you take the whiskey and the revolver and Boris Johnson drank the whiskey and shot the messengers. 
for the first couple of days. Um, but he did. Uh, he did eventually uh, on uh, Wednesday evening accept that it was time to go and, and announced that he would be leaving on Thursday morning, but he would not be leaving on anyone's timetable except his own. In classic. Johnson. Yes, so Sophia, it was uh, really extraordinary, wasn't it? We had this circumstance where, as Elizabeth has laid it out, you know, people were filing in there um, and making their views known, um, and they were dropping like flies, walking away from from the executive. And Boris Johnson, for a time, was offering those vacancies to other people, and one of those was Nahid Zahawi, who uh, who he made uh, Chancellor of the Exchequer to place Rishi Sunak. Who, who, within a very short number of hours, was also calling on Boris Johnson to uh, to, to go. Uh, really unbelievable. Yes, I mean, I think on that point about the sort of appointments, a lot of these um, individuals were in rather tricky positions because, obviously, being seen to sort of prop up the crumbling regime is not necessarily the optics that you want. And there are some within the Tory party who believe that anyone who accepted a position to continue to serve under Boris Johnson uh, should be sort of immediately ruled out of the ensuing leadership race. But equally, you know, uh, for Nadim Zahawi, I mean, being promoted to Chancellor, the second highest post in the land, uh, was an opportunity for, you know, a huge boost to his visibility. And obviously, an extremely prestigious position that carries with it all sorts of legacies of stature. Um, so I think there were there were a few of those where fundamentally they weren't sort of of the view that it was possible for Boris Johnson to uh, carry on. But this is where sort of self interest kicked in, and also you know I do think genuinely some of them felt look this is a deeply unstable situation, and even though obviously we need to have a leadership. Um, election uh, over the summer. Uh, of course, at the same time, we need to keep the government running. And it is a pretty extraordinary time in politics for this to be happening. And I think that's really important context to give here. We are in a situation that I, I would say is fairly similar um, in some ways structurally to the post-financial crisis austerity moment. We have a cost of living crisis, inflation kind of going through the roof, um, government really struggling to feel that it has many tools left in its arsenal to be able to shield citizen from, from these sort of external winds of change. Um, so it's an extremely dynamic political environment at the moment. And so I think that's just really significant backdrop to this leadership race. And um, I'm sure we'll get into this, but this is partly why um, the economy and economic management is going to be such a central theme uh, in the campaign. Yes, and I see that uh, many of the uh, 11 people who've declared an interest uh, at the moment, who I think are still in the in the race, I think at least one person's pulled out already, but um, they, they're pretty much all advocating lower taxes or tax reform in some way, which I suppose to me when I read that uh, reminded me that in some ways this is a process a bit like primaries where you have to win your party over before you are then able to go off and and you know the victor is able to go off and and um, you know win the voters over again, which is what will be required of whoever takes the job. Um, and yet there's a little bit of a, a contrast or a contradiction in that because winning over your party involves being more pure to the ideology, Maria. Um, 
then once you're there, of course, you have to speak to the broader electorate and try and rebuild the support that the government had, which did deliver, as Boris Johnson has reminded us a number of times, the biggest win for the Conservatives since 1987. So um, it's uh, it's quite a task, and but a bit of a contradictory one. They're all going to be sort of preaching the sort of pure conservative message about lower taxes and getting government out of your life and so forth, uh, corporate tax relief, all these sorts of things. Um, but it is a cost of living crisis that the government is confronted with and that's what voters are going to care about. Yeah, I think it's actually quite um, sort of fascinating in terms of watching it from an Australian perspective where um, one of our political parties has sort of experimented with, you know, having a kind of more complicated leadership selection process, the Labor Party, um, and where the other party, uh, the, the, the you know, the equivalent of the Conservatives essentially doesn't, doesn't have a process um, like this. And I think what is what is really interesting, I guess, in comparison from Australia is that you're about to actually have a leadership contest that is likely to be based around some policy principles, particularly considering, you know, Boris got them through Brexit. He was clearly a Brexit prime minister and that was sort of half of his job. Yes, he did win this huge landslide uh, victory, but you know, part of that was because he was up against Jeremy Corbyn. The the task for the Conservatives now, being quite an old government, uh, like governing in extraordinary um, times, having spent lots of money and having to kind of square that circle about what it means to be a Conservative. This this looks like it will actually be a really interesting contest. And we just had a change of government here. And our Conservative Party is having absolutely none of these conversations, even though they've just been given a really clear message from the electorate that they want to see something new. I think that says something about the way these party rules operate and what they effectively allow the Tories to do that that our party seem to struggle with. It's a very good point, isn't it? Uh, Elizabeth, I I wonder if... um I think you were around in Australia at the time of the sort of madness, really, that took hold of of politics with the you know the the Rudd Gillard Rudd Abbott sort of you know rapid changeovers and and challenges and so forth. Did it feel like that kind of drama was going on in in London over recent weeks and even months? I guess. I, I was indeed, Mark, and I, I vividly remember the night Tony Abbott got elected Liberal leader and my uh, one of my housemates was working for a Labor politician. He came in very tipsy, very happy, and I said, I really don't think this is going to be as good for you as you think it is. Um, I felt <laughs> moderately snug some months later. But um, in some respects, this has felt both more protracted and then more sudden. You know, you had definitely during that sort of Rudd-Gillard Rudd period, you obviously had Rudd on the back benches plotting away for for a very long time to to topple Gillard, whereas you didn't have anyone. Theresa May, understandably, doesn't like Boris Johnson very much, but she wasn't plotting against him. She wasn't trying to oust him. And so you actually had the majority of the party members and the the MPs trying their hardest to sort of make Boris Johnson work as Prime Minister and and make the government effective, not least because of the the cost of living crisis and the other political issues that the UK is currently facing and and the uncertainty of political situation over here with Ukraine. And then all of a sudden, it was as though everything they'd done had just been thrown back in their faces and they'd all just had Enough, and it, it was really interesting that the sort of the straw that broke the camel's back was not a policy thing. It was not about sort of 
attention to detail or whether or not he had good people in cabinet to help him formulate policies. It was once again about the sort of pestminster, as it's called, uh, scandal where you had someone sexually harassing and, and sexually abusing juniors, which is an ongoing issue in Westminster. And then you had Johnson and his team lying about it to cover up and, and try and protect um, protect Chris Pincher. And so it's fascinating to me, you know, as much as we like to say, yes, they're talking about policy, although the only policy the majority of the candidates are talking about is tax cuts, uh, apart from Rishi Sunak, who says, you know, no, we need to maintain the taxes I put in place to help us recover so we can deal with the cost of living crisis. But you have this sort of policy debate happening against a backdrop of really vicious personal briefing. So at least two dossiers uh, on the various candidates have gone to the Labor Party. Yeah, so, so it's an interesting point. Rishi Sunak actually singles himself out within the Conservative Party, which uh, is, is, is an ideological position or, or a risky position, I guess, given the, the sort of dominant ideological view within the party. He singles himself out as a... Uh, a candidate who's in favour of the tax mix as it is because he's worried about the fiscal position of the government. Indeed. He's the only person saying we need to maintain these tax levels, we need to help the budget recover, and then we'll be in a position to offer tax cuts. Whereas, you know, Sajid Javid has already offered £40 billion worth of tax cuts in the first two days of his leadership campaign which would have an inflationary effect as well as one of the worries of the economists here. If you start putting a lot of cash into people's pockets at a time of high inflation, you actually get further inflationary pressures. So it's fascinating that the number one policy tool that all of the leadership candidates, apart from Sunak, seem to want to run on is tax cuts when actually the UK budget is in really quite dire straits because of the spending that went on during COVID. Let's take a very quick break and back in a moment. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Each week we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive and it's always fun. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your pods. Or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts. Welcome back. Now, we were talking just before the break uh, about uh, Rishi Sunak's um, different position on tax and the whole argument about tax that's going on amongst them. Um, I wonder, Sophia, if uh, there is also going to be um, in the background of all this, the issue that has absolutely swamped everything else in British politics for many years now, Brexit. Now, Brexit is done, supposedly, but uh, there, there are views within the party about who was a Remainer and who was a, uh, who was a Lever. Will that, um, will that be a sort of a dynamic in this leadership? Is it absolutely critical, for example, that uh, the new leader be a Lever as well? 
Well, I think the thing to note about the uh, campaign positions that we're seeing from all the leadership um, candidates is that uh, the Conservatives have been in power uh, since 2010. Uh, they've been in power for 12 years. They were in coalition for, for the first five of that, but they you know, have held uh, Downing Street since that time. And what we've been going through is this endless process of reinvention within the party. So there is a bit of a feeling that every time uh, you know a new leader comes in, they have to have a bit of a scorched earth policy. And what we've seen is some really dramatic ideological shifts and these have been accelerating since Brexit. So in many ways, I mean, it was extraordinary under Boris because you had a situation where the Conservatives were really embracing a kind of big state mentality because that's fundamentally uh, what they felt they needed to speak to all these new voters that they brought on board because of Brexit, because of cultural issues and so on, um, that they needed to actually move to to a sort of ideological position on the state and state spending that was much closer to where traditionally one would associate with Labour. Um, what, what's happening now is the reaction to that, and that's why you've got Rishi Sunak defending his legacy, having been the one in number 11 Downing Street uh, during this time, and you have others sort of positioning themselves against that. So I think it's important to sort of understand that framework of kind of that there's this huge impetus to create the sense of a fresh start. So there's a sort of reactionary element to what's come before. On the question of Brexit, it's actually a really tricky one. As you say, I mean, Brexit is effectively done insofar as there is a kind of withdrawal agreement and we're sort of living in that world now. And I certainly don't think there's any sense of um, idea that this could be reversed in any way. Um, I think what is unique about the situation now is that the British public is absolutely sick to the teeth of Brexit, doesn't want to hear anything about it. They don't want to live in a period of uncertainty, whether that's sort of the question being reopened again, or whether that's the Northern Ireland Protocol still needing to be sort of thrashed out and and renegotiated. So I think that most candidates are clever enough to realise this, uh, even though most of the diehard Tory members uh, certainly want an idea of a kind of strong line on Brexit. It's not a totem that can really reactivate um, the the British public in any sense at the moment and actually could work against them. So uh, in many ways, I think we'll be hearing very little about Brexit overtly in this. What we will see is some signals about how uh, British foreign policy and our relationships with Europe um, will be taken from a position of confidence. And that's where things start to get interesting. So I think in terms of the identities of leave remain. I, I can tell you from my social research, all the focus groups I've been doing and so on, it, it it's less of a lightning rod. The British people themselves are kind of ready to move on from those identities. There's still ways in which, however, the Brexit identities of leave and remain are proxies for other sort of domestic social and political positions and identities. So I would imagine that we'll have, it's more like Brexit dog whistling um, as as a means of getting into some of these other divides, which are still important. Well, that's an interesting point. Does that does that? Are you saying, for example, that um, to put it in other language, that there there are sort of that the Brexit becomes a kind of as you say a proxy for whether you're a true Tory or a true believer? 
of the of the in the party? I think it's more about the kind of uh, Britain that you want to see on the other side. I mean, you know, Brexit has always been about identity and this question of, um, you know, what you want from the future of the nation and how we see ourselves and our place in the world. And those dividing lines around that are still substantively important. You still do have people who would favor a much more kind of small C conservative, sort of defensive, stronger kind of security paradigm, um, more kind of pro-nationalistic, you know, kind of uh, idea of Britain. And then you have others who are sort of more kind of ideologically sort of open internationally, more internationalist. um, And, you know, the, the specific divisions between these two, and it's not, it's not, you know, a very clear 50-50 polarized line in the way that it is in America as much. But certainly there are distinctions that stem from that around your relationship with the state, um, you know, taxation, public services, all sorts of other kind of bread and butter domestic issues. And they are important. Um, And as you say, I mean, the conversation earlier, we were talking about the distinction between the conservative members and the voting public. Um, And where the British people stand is sort of in the middle between these tribes. Um, But both of those tribes exist within the Conservative membership and the Conservative Party. And it's important to note that the Conservative Party as a whole is not always aligned with its memberships um, in in terms of um, some social issues and some economic issues as well. So you've got a really complicated triangulation that they're going to have to do there. So they're going to have to be sort of chameleons. And what they're trying to do is come up with positions at the moment that allow them to signal their instincts and build trust with the membership and the party simultaneously, but not in a way that boxes them uh, down in a way that will challenge their uh, prospects at the general election when they go to the party. Uh, Sorry, to the country. I think this idea of uh, how sort of patriotic you are and, and how much you want Britain to really project itself as a sort of positive player in the international world and and sort of have this defence stance is really interesting because you think about there's this sort of received wisdom that Boris Johnson is an amazing politician. He was once described by Sir Linton Crosby, the famous Australian election guru, as a multi-grain politician in a white bread world. But Boris himself actually didn't necessarily win the last election with a landslide. Jeremy Corbyn lost the last election in a landslide. And a lot of that was to do with his perceived lack of patriotism, his lack of engagement, the fact that he did not embody these sort of traditionally small C conservative working class values, you know, about being proud of your city, about being proud of your country, about wanting the UK to play a role in the international world. And so I really think there's a fascinating argument that, that the Tory party is working through at the moment, which is how much can you keep those voters on side, these classic red wall voters in kind of more deprived cities in the Midlands and the north of the UK who share these sort of values around how the UK should position itself in the world, who were the ones who voted for Brexit, but who want much higher levels of state spending and don't actually care that much about tax cuts because they're not the ones who are in the sort of, you know, top 10% who are being whacked with the higher taxes. And they're also the ones who are seeing that there's not enough spending in their local towns. So I think one of the big divides and one of the big challenges for the the Tory leadership candidates and then for whoever wins and, and wants to take the Tory party into the next election is how do you 
stay, you know, stay popular in those places? How do you appeal to that population whilst also really giving back to the Tory donors who are the ones who are saying tax burden is too high, you have to cut business taxes, you have to reverse these tax rises that Sunak has put in place. And that is really, that goes to the heart of a lot of this uh, debate at the moment. Yeah, it's a really fascinating point, isn't it? Because you've got, uh, with Brexit, you've got, as we described it, you know, sort of to all intents and purposes done, at least formally done. So you've resolved that question, a question around which those sort of red wall uh, seats fell to, you know, the former Labor seats in the north that fell to the Tories. Uh, that issue has been effectively prosecuted. There are details and overhang and, and so forth, but effectively prosecuted. It's not delivering for those people in ways that perhaps some of those people thought it would deliver for them, take back control and so forth. Have they got more control? Are they uh, are they happier with the Britain they have now? Perhaps some are, perhaps some aren't, but it hasn't certainly been some magic transformation of the industrial north, the long-neglected non, long areas. So how does how does the party continue to sort of prosecute uh, arguments to those people effectively? It's a really good question. And and that's where I think, you know, some of these Brexit ultras like Suella Braverman uh, in the in the candidates for the leadership will probably fall out of the race quite quickly and will use that more to position themselves to take on roles in whoever uh, wins in their ministry to try and protect the legacy of Brexit. And that's very sort of consciously the, the way in which she's positioning her race and, and some of her backers are positioning that as well. But in terms of that appeal to to those left behind voters and how you actually level up, that again goes to the heart of this taxation debate because to properly level up, which is the sort of slogan that, that Boris Johnson and before him, Theresa May, both really talked about in terms of kind of rewarding the Brexit voters in the Midlands and the North for their vote and making sure that they've said they were listening to those people's concerns and they were giving back to them for having voted Tory for the first time for many of them that you are not seeing results from that. And that can partly be blamed on the COVID pandemic. Obviously, it changed plans. It, it blew national spending out of the water. And so you didn't have the sort of money to invest that you previously had. But you're starting to see these real tensions open up between the sort of traditional Tory um, backers in the South and Southeast and big business, and then what is really needed in a lot of these left behind communities. And I think there's a real risk of social tension, which I'm sure Sophia will know more about given her social policy research. But there is this real risk of social tension for people who feel as though they were completely ignored. They voted for something that was supposed to make a difference and supposed to change things, both Brexit and then voting Tory. And if by the next election, they still haven't seen any change, they still haven't seen their communities improved, and you are seeing these huge cost of living pressures and potentially sort of greater social unrest around those, you've got a really difficult situation for whoever is the leader to, to manage in terms of saying that they've done anything in the last, well, 12 and then by then potentially 15 years of Tory government that's actually contributed to making the UK a better place to live. Sophia? I mean, one of the challenges of Brexit is that, you know, at least in the short term, um, responding to Brexit was going to be an expensive exercise um, requiring significant state expenditure, um, but also at a time when obviously we were at risk and, and I think, you know, even those who were leading the Leave campaign would accept that there were going to be short-term economic disruptions, so needing to spend more at a time when we have less. Then you've had the double whammy of uh, the COVID pandemic, which, you know, I 
it's difficult to explain, uh, perhaps to an Australian audience, just the staggering impact that this has had on our um, domestic finances because our economy did not hold up in in the same way um, as the Australian economy did uh, relatively robustly during that period. We we went into a pretty uh, dramatic shift. And though things have bounced back, um, some of the structural challenges of the pandemic and Brexit coming together in terms of labor market. You know, we have a just-in-time economy that is predicated on high levels of um, immigration, particularly sort of lower-skilled immigration to facilitate service industries. So uh, that has been a huge lag on productivity and and being able to sort of um, get back to where we were because we just don't have that inflow of people anymore. So we're going through a really fundamental structural shift in the British economy. Uh, and in the short term, that means you know qu- quite a lot of um, economic disruption and some pain. And then you've had this sort of cost of living crisis. Uh, Ukraine, we're obviously taking a really significant leadership role in that, which you know I think is absolutely the right thing to do. But that's also obviously then requiring further state resources. So I think one of the biggest challenges for the British state has been resources and bandwidth. And we've essentially been in a cycle where these have been um, under enormous pressure for about two and a half years now, really since the um, election and obviously uh, ever since the Brexit vote and a lot of the promises that had to be made on the back of that in terms of state expenditure. So It's a really difficult climate uh, where our resources are more constrained, and yet the domestic, political, and international landscape requires us to spend more. What that means is a very turbulent, you know, I don't think just a few years, but a pretty turbulent decade. And um, as Elizabeth mentioned, there will be considerable social implications for this. So, you know, this in many ways, this leadership contest um, is is coming at a really significant time. I mean, I don't think any leader feels that they're going to be sort of in the golden years. You're going to need people who are really kind of bold, ambitious, and and a competent and able to get the job done. And I think, you know, in many ways. Boris Johnson succeeded in bringing the country forward after this really, really grueling uh, period of of these sort of very bitter, acrimonious, emotional Brexit years. Um, And he did kind of push the country forward by saying, that's done, let's look to the future. And I think that was a really important contribution. Where we're at now is really needing people who can put the nuts and bolts on the policy apparatus. And that's really what's at stake in this leadership election. We should also say we haven't mentioned um, the leader of the opposition, Keir Starmer. Yes, I was actually coming to him. I, I, I just wanted, before we go to Keir Starmer, because I do want to come to him as, as, as a final thing, but just sticking with what you were saying there for a moment and what it made me think of, which was about the way Johnson has conducted himself. I'm wondering if the new leader, if what voters want now from a new leader, having, let's say, and being generous and accepting you know, the thing, the good things that Johnson has done, um, as well as the reasons he's had to go. But are voters now looking for a kind of more sober, less, they don't want the excitement, they don't want party gate and all the questions and the sleaze and the, and the, uh, the endless intrigue about, um, about what's truthful and what isn't and so forth. They're looking for now competent, sober leadership for this very complex 
a set of policy challenges that you've just described? Yes. I, I think Boris Johnson made a really significant contribution simply through his optimism. And that was very much needed kind of in the social fabric at that time. But I suppose if you had to sum it up in a sentence, it's just optimism is not enough. And essentially what happened was, I think I think Boris in a way wanted to be a sort of good time prime minister. I mean, everybody does. Um, and the idea of sort of taking Britain forward into kind of a brighter period was really torpedo with the pandemic and everything that's come since. And, you know, every single time there've been uh, scandals coming up, they just haven't been competently handled and they've ended up sort of spiraling in, in, in a way that's just been completely unnecessary. And so I do think that desire for for a quieter, more stable, um, secure, kind of even technocratic politics. Uh, the desire for that is very strong and, and is very much something that, um, you know, I think both parties are aware of. The challenge is at the same time, you know, there is a feeling that the country's morale does still need to be sort of boosted in a, in a way that you know, Boris was very effective at. And so you do want someone with a little bit of pizzazz. I, I don't think um, really we're in the same kind of moment as it as um, when Theresa May was ushered into Downing Street, which was when we were just incredibly insecure about what was going to happen with Brexit. And the idea of someone who was very dull, but very competent as administrator appealed. I think we're at a sort of a, a point somewhere between the two, because the reality is that the the task at hand doesn't just require someone who's competent, but you need an enormous amount of political will to get people on side with the kinds of responses that we're going to need to be sort of pushing through. So in a way, you do want someone who's a bit visionary, a bit dynamic. Someone who can really in, in, engage people and bring them along and and, and bring to put together yeah. coalitions to make, make people understand what the bigger plan is and, and get that kind of momentum going. And yeah, that's a really interesting point. Look, I know both of you uh, have to uh, be away shortly, so I just want to very quickly... Uh, sorry to cut you off there, Sophia, but I want to just very quickly cover two other things. One of them is, still on this, is that out of those 11 people, there's quite a few people of colour who are standing, which I think is a quite interesting and uh, important thing to acknowledge about what we're, you know, let's face it, talking about the leadership of the British Conservative Party. That's, I think, an interesting moment to see so many people of colour in that uh, in that cohort. I agree. I think what's also notable is how many women are running yes. for leader and, you know, women particularly from a, a South Asian background. And that's one of the things that the Tory party has done amazingly well here is appealing to these sort of communities of people whose parents migrated in, you know, the 50s and 60s and whose children talk about, you know, you watch Rishi Sunak's video where he campaigns for leader and he talks about his mother being a migrant, which is fascinating mm. in a Tory party that doesn't always like migration. So you do have this sense of optimism there from these people saying, my parents were given the opportunity to build a life. Look at what I've achieved on the basis of what the British state has done for me, that, that Britain gave my family an opportunity it would not have had, had we stayed uh, you know, where we came from. And, and some of them came from India, some from Pakistan, some from East Africa. Uh, but the British state has given me that opportunity and I really want to rebuild the country to give that opportunity to you and your children. And that I think is a very inspiring message. The one thing mm. I would say about the policy debate, which I think is fascinating, is that a lot of the people running for leader don't have significant domestic political 
experience, domestic policy experience. So Rishi Sunak obviously was in the in the Treasury and, and has that experience, but many of them have a foreign policy background. Liz Truss, Penny Mordaunt, also foreign policy, Minister of Defence, but very briefly. Even Jeremy Hunt probably has the most experience. He ran the, the NHS, he was the health minister, but then he also was the foreign minister. So I think a worrying sign in terms of the competence of the next leader to grasp the very fundamental domestic policy challenges is the fact that a lot of the people running don't have that domestic policy experience. And I think we'll need to make sure they bring a strong team around them and a strong cabinet around them to help solve these issues. Really interesting point. Um, I do want to talk about Keir Starmer. So, Keir Starmer, so I'm going to do that in literally one moment. I've been promising it for a while, but that quickly, I would just want to, uh, from, from what you were just saying, it raised a, an interesting uh, question in my mind, and that is, is there any possibility that, because one of the things that, that Boris did uh, well was uh, driving uh, the climate change debate, you know, being a force for change in that argument. Um, is there any likelihood of a change, a softening of the stance of the government on its uh, ambitious emissions cuts and moves to renewables and so forth, uh, Sophia? Well, what we've actually already seen is some rolling back of the timeline on the net zero agenda. And I can tell you from having been doing focus groups this year that really just it was April, uh, things started to shift. And that's as the cost of living crisis started yeah. to become very individually visible for, for Britons from all walks of life. Um, and it, it was quite resilient for a while there. I mean, I think it's important to say the issue of climate change in Britain is absolutely settled. There's, it's not up for debate. Everyone's on the same page there. And Brits still want the UK to be leading um, on international climate action. That that's not what's at stake. What what is being thrashed out at the moment is the pace of the transition to net zero. And even in October, November, December last year, there was a huge appetite amongst the British people for us to be uh, pursuing a pretty ambitious timeframe on that, um, and you know, quite radical policy interventions. And what's happened now is just as people are really starting to count their pennies and and feel the pinch, uh, there is a feeling that perhaps climate change is a slightly longer term. Uh, problem, and you know, we need to be focusing all of our energies uh, on uh, the the really immediate crises that we face now. What's concerning for the government about this is there is an aspect of this which is perceiving a, a sort of institutional decay. The British people aren't actually sure that the government can deliver on its ambitions, and therefore are minded to um, request a slightly. Uh, uh, you know, less optimistic time frame around those sorts of things. So that is is concerning. The, the Johnson government already announced recently a little bit of a scaling back in some of its plans. So I think you know we we should expect that this will actually become um, quite an important aspect of the leadership contest over the summer. Hmm, that's an interesting point. Can I get just uh, from both of you your assessment of Keir Starmer through all this? I, I was uh, impressed by the way he quite quickly moved his attack in PMQs to the Tory front bench. Having decided that Boris Johnson was already toast, he um, he moved his attack to them. He talked about the charge of the lightweight brigade, people who'd only just discovered their backbones and so forth. Um, Elizabeth, uh, how has Labor fared through this and is Labor in a position to capitalise politically? 
certainly if you look at the the polling, you know, the Labor Party now is ahead. They just had a, a victory in a by-election in a, in a red wall seat, which had been won by a Tory and now has been won back by the Labor Party. In many respects, Keir Starmer, although he's a very different politician to Anthony Albanese, is following the same playbook. You know, keep your head down, let the other team mess up, don't make too many uh, big policy announcements, don't be a big target. He's got the advantage that the next election doesn't need to be for for two years. So he's got sort of a bit more time to establish himself. I think the worrying thing for the Labour Party, as it was the Labour Party in Australia, is that he still doesn't have a strong public persona. So he's seen as reasonably likeable. He's seen as someone who is competent. He's obviously, you've got a more sober uh, demeanour. But whether or not that's enough for them to win in a couple of years will be, I think, the big the big question. And so it depends who wins the Tory uh, leadership election. If it's someone who's very closely associated with Johnson's government, someone like Liz Truss or even potentially Rishi Sunak, Kia has a very well-made attack line for the next couple of years, which is there's been no change. This is still the same people at the top. There's still the same issues in terms of probity and, and honesty and competence. But if somebody who hasn't been very associated with Johnson's government, someone like Penny Mordaunt or Tom Tugendhat comes through, then Kier and his team will really need to think about what their argument is and how they go about prosecuting something that has that positivity and optimism that Sophia was talking about and can appeal to people who are frankly pretty sick of, of politics, but even more sick of the issues that haven't been solved. And I, th- I think that's the point about Starmer is that he does have that sort of competence. Uh, he's able to reject an air of competence, uh, but he doesn't have the dynamism and that and that sense of kind of real radicalism and and being really hungry for something, which in a way I think the British people want. They want a government that's really going to, you know, fight for them and be ambitious and and push things, you know, to the edges. And I think, you know, he's going to have to find a way to to bring some of that side, that sort of tenacity out of him. Um, and I don't think we're there yet. It's also important to know that um, the the events of the past few weeks in this leadership contest all but confirms that our election will not be held until 2024. Now, obviously, as we well know with um, Albanese, pursuing a a small target strategy is uh, something that can be effective, but, uh, you know, it does have a time limit (laughs) on how long you can uh, sort of fall underneath the radar there. So in, in a way, he's got longer time to prove himself, but he also has to really defend the patch that he has created. It's, It's, really worth uh, just emphasizing the damage that was done to the Labour Party under Jeremy Corbyn, not just in terms of its reputation, but structurally. And Keir has had to spend the first period of his leadership um, of the party really just getting the House back in order and even just making the case of why Labour should have a seat at the table in any kind of bipartisan way, um, particularly on things like security. So in, I think he's actually done pretty well in that respect. He's been benefited by um, Boris Johnson being in government. And actually, in a way, even though the new leader could present some opportunities, it will also present some risks. Yeah, I was going to say it, it. It sounds like from what you're both saying that, in some ways, he would have been better for a wounded uh, Boris Johnson to survive for some time yet, uh, perhaps closer to the election, so that 
one, uh, the damage to the Tory government is, is is more structural and deeper and longer and the frustrations have built and also because it would give, give less time for whoever replaced Johnson to, you know, sort of right the ship, alter course and so forth. Uh, it's going to be a difficult uh, period for both sides, it sounds like, and uh, one fascinating dimension will be the extent to which the government can fully regroup behind a new leader or whether there will be ongoing tensions because we know certainly in Australia it's been ongoing tensions after leadership changes that have essentially brought about, you know, been causative in in subsequent changes as well. So, yes, it's going to be quite fascinating. I know both of you have to go and I, we've had one or two technical difficulties here and we've lost Maria uh, to some domestic demands that she needed to deal with. So, um Thank you very much, Sophia Gaston and Elizabeth Ames, for being with us again on Democracy Sausage. Thanks, Mark. Thanks, Mark. And obviously thanks to Maria, uh, who, uh, as I say, had to go. Uh, We'll be back with Democracy Sausage again next week. Uh, Bye for now. Hey, Drew Scott here, and I'm Jonathan Scott, reminding you that life's better with a home policy from American Family Insurance. They can help you get just the right protection at just the right price and help you save when you bundle home and auto. Kind of like Goldilocks and the Three Bears. It'll be just right for you. We love a custom build. American Family Insurance. Insure carefully. Dream fearlessly. Get a quote and find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.